Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place to so make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Welcome, everyone. Super happy to be here with Jess Ramos. Uh, it is an episode that I've been looking forward. Uh, if you're a fan of SQL, um, this episode might interest you. And this is the light on me. So if you're watching with the video, uh, Jess, before we start in this podcast, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I have many questions, but uh, for the audience and uh, welcome again on, on this uh, new uh, episode. I'm super happy to see all the feedbacks uh, on the podcast. Uh, Jess, can you maybe uh, uh, introduce yourself in a few sentences, uh, whether professionally, um, but also personally? Yeah, of course. Um, professional, professionally, I am a senior data analyst at Crunchbase. I've been working in analytics and the tech space over the past few years. My passion is data and tech, and I like using data and tech to make the world a better place. I'm also a LinkedIn learning instructor, and my first course just came out about a month or two ago. So if you're looking to get into analytics, definitely take my course. And then personally, I just have a lot of hobbies. I like working out. I coach a middle school lacrosse team, and I like volunteering to teach English to local immigrants in my community. That's awesome. That's a very interesting, uh, uh, very interesting curriculum. And um, and uh, I, I, I wanted to ask you before we, we get into more of um, who you are and, and what you do and data analytics, uh, how it relates with um, with AI, of course, but um, I would like to know what are your goals at the moment? It can be the field or out of the field, but uh, what are your current uh, goals and what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, so currently I'm trying to figure out what content creation looks like for me long-term. Over the past year, I've been really building up my personal brand and just growing my audience, working with LinkedIn Learning. It's been an awesome year. But this year, my goal is to figure out what does this look like long term? Does it look like me starting a business and creating analytics resources for other people? I'm not really sure yet. I'm still trying to figure it out. And then my next goal is to also work on another course with LinkedIn Learning, hopefully this year. That's awesome. That's super interesting. Um, and uh, OK, so we have quite a good idea of uh, who you are and what you're doing. But can you give us a little retrospective in a few minutes of your career uh, to, to this point, uh, because you're now actually working at Crunchbase, right? Uh, if I'm not wrong, but uh, can you give us this little retrospective? Yeah, so starting back to when I was in school, I studied math and Spanish in okay. undergrad, and then I okay. also had a business minor. So I didn't really know how to combine my love for math with or into a career. So that led me to pursue a career in analytics. I got the opportunity to have 
a directed study in analytics in undergrad. And then I also had a job on campus working with data. So that really solidified my interest and passion for data. And then from there, I decided to go to grad school. So I went to the University of Georgia, where I got my master's in business analytics. And while I was getting my grad degree, I got an internship as a data analyst at a small fintech company. And then from there, I was lucky enough that they hired me full time when I finished my degree. So I started as a data analyst, and then I worked my way up through senior data analyst to analytics manager. And then I realized I was a manager at a really young age, and I felt like I had maxed out that role. I didn't feel like I could really grow a whole lot more technically in that position and company. Mm -hmm. So that led me to pursue my next career move, which was a senior risk analyst at Freddie Mac. And Freddie Mac is a big traditional corporate company. So Mm -hmm. it was a very contrasting experience from my small fintech startup position. Mm. And I realized pretty quickly that I missed the startup life. I missed the quick paced work and the fast innovation and the more modern techniques and tech stack. So I pivoted this past November to Crunchbase as a senior data analyst. And I'm super happy here. And it's where I've been since. Awesome. That's a... Very efficient retrospective, super interesting. Okay, I'll just jump back to uh, what you started describing uh, when you were studying math uh, and analytics. Um, I've heard sometimes, like when you talk about um, about that and analytics, there are, there are a lot of statistics, a lot of mathematics, but I wanted to ask you, how do you find useful like what you learned in your mathematic background? Like, how does it apply on a daily basis and, uh, and, and how, how useful it is to you uh, to have strong fundamentals in mathematics? So I would say it's extremely useful, but I don't say that to scare people. A lot of people are scared that analytics is going to be too much math. And they're like, I'm not good at math. I don't like math. I don't know if a career in data is right for me. Yeah. So if you're one of those people, don't worry. Math is not something you need to be like, crazy good at to work at analytics, but I will say you do need to have some sort of foundations. So kind of breaking it down, I think the biggest things you need to know are basic probability and statistics. So understanding how those relate to data. So the distribution of data, um, measures of central tendency, how to handle outliers, all those types of things you're doing with the data come down to statistics. And then if you go into a more advanced role and you're maybe doing hypothesis testing or A-B testing, those you're going to be using a little bit more statistics. So I definitely recommend brushing up on statistics if you want to go go into analytics. And then I'd also really encourage people to take a course on logic, just understanding, just walking through different assumptions and theorems, understanding basic logic would really help. Because those are the things I always use when I'm coding. Even Mm. just writing in SQL, you're using logic. You might not realize it, but just having a foundation in logic will really help you learn how to code faster. So those are the main hard skills I took away from my math degree that I use all the time. But I think more than anything, my math degree really taught me how to think critically. It taught me how to struggle through problems when I have no idea how to tackle them. Mm -hmm. And it taught me just how to think logically, identify assumptions and limitations, and really think through what I'm doing. Hmm. 
that's super interesting. Do you feel uh, do you feel like math is funnier when you like you had more interest in maths when you started coding, or do you feel like coding enhanced your mathematical skills, or like how do you relate coding and mathematics? I think I didn't really realize how much math was in coding until later on. Back when I was getting my degree, I was very much in school mode. Like I have to learn everything really quickly. I have to take the test. I have to get a good grade. I wasn't really thinking about my career in the future because I was so caught up in the loop of school, like studying and cramming all the time, studying for the next test. So I didn't really realize how useful it was going to be. But looking back, I really wish I would have taken more computer science classes in school because Mm. now I'm just seeing how much that those would have helped me in my career. Huh, super interesting. And and now that we're talking about um, learning and classes, and um, I wanted to ask you, how do you today, uh, how do you compare yourself uh, from uh, the version of yourself at the university and the version uh, of yourself today um, in the approach of learning new new fundamentals, new concepts, new, new statistics, um, theories. How do you, how do you compare uh, those two versions of yourself? I think I'm honestly a completely different person, even just from who I was one year ago, my life has completely changed. Mm -hmm. I've only been creating content on LinkedIn for a little over 11 months now. So my life has just changed a lot recently. And I think it's helped me develop a lot of confidence and, Mm -hmm especially when I was in school and just starting out my career, I had a lot of imposter syndrome. I didn't really feel super represented all the time being a woman in data. And I always thought that maybe I'm not as smart as those guys. Maybe I'm not smart enough to be here. So I think over the past year or two, I've really just developed confidence and security in who I am. And I didn't necessarily have that when I was in school. Hmm. Wow, that's super interesting. Yeah, and now you so you've been creating content on LinkedIn for only eleven months. That's right. And so you now have today, I think, more than eighty thousand people who are following you, and you are, um, um, how is it called, LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn teacher? Is that correct? LinkedIn influencer, if you want to call oh. me an influencer. But like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can call you uh, an influencer, but um, what is the name of um, like when you do courses for LinkedIn? Oh, LinkedIn instructor. Learning Instructor. Oh, instructor. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. So you're a LinkedIn influencer instructor. So yes. And this only in 11 months of creating content, which is uh, fascinating. Uh, I want Now that we're speaking about that, I want to ask you and for the people who are listening, what value did you find in creating content on LinkedIn and in sharing your your knowledge and, and, and how your journey? Like, what did you get from that? Because you've only been doing it for 11 months and you have over uh, 80,000 uh, people who are following your journey and, and interacting with you. So how do you, yeah, can, can you give uh, some insights? Yeah, so creating content has truly changed my life, as cheesy as that sounds. I never thought that I would have a platform to be able to share my stories, my experiences, my passion. Never in a million years did I think I would be here, but I'm super just happy and blessed to have this opportunity. So I think the number one thing it's given me is community. I've met so many people through the platform 
And I'm even in a group chat with other people who create data content. So we kind of have this like content creator community and we can really support each other when we need it. We can ask for advice like, hey, I have this problem at my company or I want to do a collaboration with this company. Do you have any tips? So we're just always there to support each other. And then even outside of that group chat, the LinkedIn community is super supportive. I've just been able to meet so many cool people and just hear how, you know, my content helped them with something or inspired them. I've had people come out and reach out to me and I've give, I've given them a few tips and then they landed a job a few weeks later with a new resume I helped them with. Just stories like that. So it's like the coolest thing in the world, the fact that I've actually impacted even just some people's lives in the smallest amount. And that's what really keeps me going. So I think the community aspect is huge. And then on top of that, the career opportunities I've had, I mean, to be a LinkedIn learning instructor, that is like so, that's a huge deal to me. It's really exciting because not only is it a job and I'm happy to do that job, I also get to have a voice as a woman and I get to teach other people analytics. And I just think that's the coolest thing ever. I hope that Mm. young women out there who are maybe a few years behind where I am, I hope they're able to see my courses and see themselves in analytics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and, and I see what you mean. You mentioned before a barrier of uh, like um, maybe for for someone it can seem... overwhelming the field of data analytics and like AI and, and what's going on there. And and the fact that uh, there are people out there like yourself um, sharing their journey, sharing knowledge, sharing how to approach new things can really makes, make the path easier. And so, so if you're in that case right now listening and if you're at the beginning of your career, um, uh, don't don't let fear into that because uh, it's um, it will not be useful and just follow talented people uh, like Jess. Uh, only it's okay. We've interviewed a lot of people who are great in the field and who shares a lot of content. And correct me, Jess, but uh, I think that through this process of just following the right people and and finding a little bit your your place on, on this community of data and AI. Uh, just with the feed, just with the LinkedIn feed, like I learned so much. I, passive learning Same. that that I learned so many things and and I see later things. And the great thing is because you start sharing about your journey, then you can also ask to others. And like you mentioned, you have like communities, groups, and like group where you can ask questions. So yeah, um, if you're a woman or a, or however you identify let's say to be very um, open-minded on on this podcast um, there is a room for everyone and if you feel insecure I think that what you mentioned is uh, just reach out to people who are in the field and this is something that a lot of people don't do and it helps so much just to have some guidance and some feedback on how something is so yeah what what would you add something just on uh, on this little um, drift of uh, tips for people who are start, start starting? I would say just do it and don't look back. Be authentically yourself. You don't have to pretend to be someone else or post what you think people want to see. If you're scared to start posting on LinkedIn, just do it. Reach out to people, build a community, make relationships. 
it will definitely increase your confidence and just open up a lot of career opportunities for you long term. That's super insightful. Well, thanks a lot for sharing about that. Um, I would like to ask you about your um, senior data analyst and manager roles. Um, how would you compare? Um, well, first of all, how would you uh, explain a little bit your role actually uh, at uh, at Crunchbase? And maybe can you share some interesting experiences that you faced, challenges, and like how you faced them, like just so that we can understand a bit better Uh, what you do and how do you approach challenges? Yeah, so my senior data analyst position at Crunchbase is on a centralized analytics team, which means that it's in the center of the company. So we work with all these different stakeholders. And I personally really like that because I always get to work on a lot of different types of projects and okay. a different a lot of different types of data. So that's really exciting for me. Mm -hmm. And I've just worked on a variety of projects. So a lot of projects relating to optimizing SQL, troubleshooting, why certain dashboards or queries are taking a long time to load in our data warehouse. Um, the biggest project I'm actually working on right now is a product experiment. So this has been in the works for pretty much all of 2023 so far. So for the last like three months, I've been working on this with... Um, APM and designers, leadership, engineers, all these different stakeholders. And we're basically putting together an experiment to improve our trial experience. So users can go onto our website and start a free trial. And our working group is dedicated to improving the experience for users. So we have a we have an experiment running right now, and it's been really cool to see that. I was part of the planning process from the very beginning. I helped design metrics, which believe it or not, was the hardest part of the whole experiment. Yeah. <laughs> Getting all of the events sent to our engineers so we can track everything, running power analyses to see how long we need to run the experiment. And then in a few weeks, whenever it's done, I'll get to interpret the results for stakeholders. So it's definitely the most exciting project I've worked on since starting. Oh, that's super interesting. I wanted to ask you about uh, A-B testing or hypothesis testing. Um, do you have some insights of like what you learn, uh, like working on this project and maybe on other projects um, about, well, first of all, for the people who are not familiar with A-B testing, let's start with A-B testing and, and, and then talk about hypothesis testing. Can you describe just briefly what is A-B testing? Yeah, so basically A-B testing is splitting up. Well, in my case, I'm working with product, the product, so I'm splitting up users. So I think that's a pretty common use case that a lot of people use it for in business. So I'm basically splitting up users into two groups. So group A and group B, one of those groups is going to receive the control experience and the other one's going to receive the treatment experience. So the control is our current user experience and then our treatment is the product change that we're implementing so basically we're going to hold everything else constant we're going to only make those product changes for the treatment group and then we're going to compare the results at the end so we have these metrics that we've defined ahead of time yeah. and we're going to see how those metrics perform in the two different groups mm. so it's kind of a way to do like an an apples to apples comparison kind of you're comparing two groups measuring the outcomes of both with the metrics that you define 
and then you know that the only difference I mean, theoretically, hopefully, as long as you don't have any other noise thrown into the experiment. But the only difference between the groups should be just the product change in the treatment that you assign to the treatment group. So it, it allows you to see what kind of impact that change had on your desired metric. Hmm. Well, thank you for uh, this wonderful explanation. Um, and um so you mentioned how you decide which metrics you're going to use. And this is something super interesting because uh, so now that we have in mind that we want to test new features or new way to do things, uh, let's say about users, uh, have decided those metrics is um, very important because we could take, for example, uh, basic metrics, like for example, the number of users, uh, but if it grows through times, um, it won't really be significative of uh, the A or the B testing. So we need to define specific metrics that will allow us to compare our group A and our group B, right? So regarding that, do you have some insights from what you've learned about what, like how do you approach defining metrics for an A-B testing, for example? Yeah, that has definitely been the biggest challenge of this experiment for me. So... Some of the challenges I faced, I think one of the challenges was different stakeholders have different priorities. So I had some stakeholders like leadership, they were more focused on conversion. So how many of those trial users converted to a paid plan, which means mm -hmm. how many after their trial was up, ended up signing up for a subscription. Yeah. So conversion rate is directly tied to revenue because the more users we have that convert, the more revenue that we bring in. So leadership was more focused on those higher up revenue metrics. I had other stakeholders that were more interested in user activity. So how, how many days were they active during their trial period? I had other ideas thrown in about um, feature usage. So based on the product changes we made, what features were those users using? I'm trying to speak really vaguely right now because I don't want to say too many details about the project because um, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to share or not. So I'm trying to be vague. But um, yeah, so the hardest part was working with all these different stakeholders. They all had different priorities and all of the metrics really pointed to different goals. So is our goal to make more money? Is our goal to have more activity on the platform? is our goal to have more usage of these features. So that was the most challenging part to define. And then of course, there's technical limitations to the metrics too. Some of the metrics I looked at, I ran a power analysis for, and a power analysis is basically a way to look at the baseline and the projected um, change in the metric and you can determine how long you think you're going to need to run the experiment in order to mm. get statistical significance. Significance. Okay. So some of the metrics, they were presenting a really long experiment time, like 30 weeks or more. And we don't have half a year to run this experiment. It's a startup. We have to innovate quickly. Yeah. So that also went into the selection process for the metrics because we needed a metric that we could get a statistical significant result on in yeah. only a few weeks. So that also went into it. And then there were, of course, other technical limitations. What are we able to track in the database? 
if we can't track it in the database, can we send the event to the engineers? Can they track the front end, what the users are doing? So we have the data to track for the metric. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there were just a lot of different factors that went into choosing the metrics for the experiment. Wow, that's super interesting. Thank you so much for, for sharing uh, this approach. Um, testing in, in companies is um, is one of the most important thing I feel. And more, more importantly, nowadays that like so many projects are going to happen uh, and grow and develop. Uh, because of how easier it is to build projects, I feel, uh, with what we're seeing with generative AI. And um, I was speaking the other day uh, with uh, Peter, you can check out the podcast, uh, but um, we were discussing about, uh, okay, you have an assistant that can build code and that's great, but uh, the code that is proposing, is it like average code or is it like super efficient code? And so like there is all emerging and we were discussing about uh, the jobs uh, in the industries and the opportunities, but um, that's an entire topic. So I totally drifted here. I apologize. <laughs> um, but uh, if, you, if you're interested, you can, you can check it out. And so to come back um, to your uh, senior data analyst role right now, you mentioned that before that you were a manager. Can you share with us a bit your experience as a manager? Yeah, so... I was at a pretty small fintech startup with only 40 people. So Mm -hmm. it was a smaller company, which gave me a lot of opportunity and room to grow my career pretty quickly, which was awesome. So I ended up moving up to a manager level and I reported to the head of products and operations. And then I had two people reporting to me. One was a full-time data analyst and she reported to me for, I think, a year and a half-ish. And then I also had an intern come on for my last six months and she was reporting to me as well. So it was a really fun experience because I was able to just kind of be a mentor in a way. I mean, ironically, the one person who reported to me was only a year younger than me. And then the other person who reported to me was, I think, five to eight years older than me. So it was kind of funny, but we just worked really well together. And it was fun for me to be able to share my experiences from when I first started in analytics and at that company, and I was able to just give them some support and confidence and tell them, it's okay if you don't know everything. I know this is really intimidating and a lot of information. I was where you are a year ago or two years ago. So I really liked the mentorship aspect and I'm actually still friends with both of them. The three of us are getting dinner tomorrow. So it's just been cool to build those relationships and also to just lean on each other as a team. Even though I was their manager, we were a very flat org in a way. So it really just felt like we were all friends working together on the same team. Hmm. That's super interesting. And you're mentioning like the ages differences. Uh, I feel like this is some important point because uh, I feel like age doesn't have to do with career because, uh, well, I will ask you, I'll just ask you about uh, what do you think about like the age of someone and, and the role, uh, the role the person have and how, how do you approach this? How do you approach ages differences uh, and what are your thoughts in general? Yeah, so I honestly really feel like age is just a number. I think that 
I mean, I actually did a post on this yesterday. I think that a lot of times when companies ask how many years of experience do you have, it's almost asking how old are you in an indirect way. Maybe not always, but a lot of times I feel like, you know, they're trying to assess how many years post-grad is this person. And I think that to an extent, age is really just a number because there are different types of candidates out there. Someone like me, I'm extremely ambitious. I love learning. Every time I achieve a goal, I'm always thinking, okay, what's my next goal? Like, I just can't ever be complacent and just exactly happy where I am. Mm-hmm. Maybe that sounds awful, but it's kind of exhausting. But great. I'm always excited for my next goal. I'm always looking for what's the next thing I'm going to learn? What's you know my next career goal? And I think that that makes me a valuable candidate because I have achieved a lot at my age. And I don't mean that in a cocky way. I just mean that I'm always pushing for the next thing. I've worked really hard to get where I am. And most people haven't had the same career path that I have. And then I have, you know, friends and other people I know who have been at, you know, maybe larger companies and they haven't worked on as many projects. They've been working on slow moving work, maybe some Excel sheets and not really doing a whole lot of nitty gritty technical stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that, you know, these two types of contrasting experiences can really be measured and compared in years. Because I think, you know, three years or five years for one person, it might be different than three or five years for another person. And I think it really comes down to work ethic, ambition, personality, enthusiasm, the ability to learn. I just think there's so many more soft skills that are way more important than just the amount of years that you've been alive or yeah. the amount of years you've been working. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned soft skills. And so we're talking about sometimes technical jobs, sometimes jobs that requires a very good understanding of the business and like what we're trying to achieve, the vision, where is the value. Uh, I was discussing the other day on LinkedIn about like like role names and I was sharing that to me, the the best role is the one that adds the most uh, value out of uh, the business and, and the growth. And, uh, and I feel like a lot of the time we try to put ourselves in like, I'm a data scientist, I'm a data engineer. I'm a, and like, so I, I, I'll go this path and I learn these tools. And it's not like we forget because we're very well aware on LinkedIn about like all those posts about soft skills, super important in, in technical jobs. Uh, I wanted to ask you, how do you, how do you see uh, the importance of technical skills and soft skills and how do you relate one to another uh, to to one grow a career? Yeah, that's a good question. And soft skills are something I also like to talk about a lot on LinkedIn because I think they get overlooked easily. Hmm. Um, Soft skills are super important for this kind of career. And to be honest, I have learned and really grown my soft skills a lot in my current role. Honestly, like they've been whooping my butt. Like I thought I was so good at communicating and working with stakeholders. And I've really been challenged in my current role, which is great because I'm like, wow, I actually do need to work on this some more. Um, So 
there's just a lot of pieces going into some of these different projects. And before I was talking about understanding stakeholders' main goals and getting events sent to engineers to put in the database, all these different things in the project I was talking about before, those are all communicating and they're translating what you're doing in someone else's language. So when I'm going to talk to leadership or you know a non-technical person, I have to approach them with easy to understand language. I can't use technical jargon. They don't want to hear about, you know, the SQL query I wrote and the assumptions I assumed and the filters. They just want to know like what's the result and, you know, kind of how how did you get to that conclusion in a way? And similarly, when I'm working even with other technical people, the engineers, the front-end engineers, they specialize in the front-end of the product. So I have to translate what I need to have in the database into what they see on the front-end. So a big part of soft skills is just being a translator. You have to be able to speak everyone's language. And then, of course, have that business acumen because you have to be able to translate the results of an analysis and make it useful for the business. So I think... For me, those are the soft skills I've really been learning a lot about lately. And back to how they grow your career, I think the soft skills are what really separate people the most from a regular data analyst to a senior data analyst. I think, of course, the longer you code and work on the technical stuff, you're going to grow your technical skills. That's definitely a big part of being a senior analyst. But I think the soft skills are what really set you apart because they're harder to, to teach and learn. Exactly. And this was my upcoming question because today with, okay, so let's say in some months, right, we have like AI assistants that can do things for us in the kind of like service in Iron Man. You know, like how Iron Man is like upgrade this to 70% or do that to X percent. So uh, I'm not saying that this is going to replace all technical jobs, not at all, because um the expertise behind a machine learning engineer uh, is much more than just building models. It's like understanding the efficiencies of the code, of the models. Why would we use one model instead of another? So there are like many things, but uh, we were discussing this with Peter uh, the other day on, on the on the podcast about like how all this new generative AI will impact jobs in the field and out of the field. Um, uh, but those will impact, so so it will have an impact on technical skills, and like allow people to grow faster, and so, and so I uh, I'm I'm stating that just to agree with you in, in in the in the way of the value is like how do we combine all the pieces that we need to for example satisfy the stakeholders and the business vision. And I feel like this is what you mentioned. This is um, a skills where you're kind of a translator because you're able to speak technically, but also in business terms or in simpler terms, or and you can really adapt. And I feel like adapting here is a key point of uh, your example. And so I wanted to ask you now, if someone who is technical um, and is listening, how do you work on those soft skills? And because 
it's very easy when you code you have a problem and you have succeed when you finish like you have your print and your and like if you're in python and you have your print and, and you see that your print passes and before it warrant you know you've made progress but how do you know that you made progress in uh your soft skills and how do you know that you're growing and yeah can you give some insights about that yeah. And I think soft skills are one of the hardest things to really work on because as far as I know, there's not a course out there that really teaches them. And I think that it's hard to even measure the success of your soft skills. Whereas, you know, like you said, you code, you get an error message, you fix it, it works. Like, you know, if you did it right or not. Yeah. Um, I think a big thing with soft skills is honestly just making mistakes and learning from them. I think the best way I've learned soft skills is through mistakes and there are situations and things that I did even back to when I was an intern or even just heck, even during this project I'm in now where I realized, wow, I could have handled this better. I wish I would have said X, Y, Z or communicated this better. And I think making mistakes is just a really good way to learn them. Um, another tip I have is try explaining your work to someone that knows nothing about it. Like mm. I... For example, my husband, he doesn't work in data or business, so he's in a completely different industry and type of role than I'm in, and I'll mm -hmm. talk to him about things I'm working on, and I'm like super excited about it. I'm like, so today we did this A-B test with the product team, and I think if you're able to explain it to someone who knows nothing about it and you're able to communicate that, I think mm -hmm. that's really good practice because you're learning to, to share not only in simple terms what it is you're doing but you're also able to tell a story with it because if the person doesn't understand why it's important, why you did what you did, what the results were, then you're probably not going to be able to explain it to a stakeholder at work. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And speaking of stakeholders, um, um, well, first of all, I, I was, um, I had this, uh, sentence in mind that I really like and, and they are very interesting book and I agree there is not enough content about social skills and like how to really grow your social skills because we've seen different types of management uh, I've heard sometimes that some people weren't happy with their managers but I, when they're telling me the stories I'm like who is this manager because they're telling me experiences that I personally have very few experiences like that and i'm super happy with uh, my managers and, and the people around me and and even in, in stress situations where really it is interesting to see how how it happens and how people communicate because those are the moments where the soft skills are being challenged and 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 when i hear some stories i'm like wow this is um yeah, but maybe like from the point of view of the person who is uh, living this moment, uh, there is no problem with uh, his soft skill um, or her soft skills. And uh, the person is just preoccupied with the goals and trying to achieve them. So maybe the communication will change and being more aggressive. And and so those are super important things. And um, and um, we, we are working on some notes about that, uh, at least okay, AI, about like how to grow soft, soft skills. Um, we, I really like this sentence of um, before saying like if we want to give feedback or or not happy with the result or see another direction. Uh, I really like the sentence. I feel like mm -mm -mm, and then stating the problem or the thing. And so and so now we are never using this sentence. We're never like attacking anyone. We're never like putting the fault on anyone. We're just trying to explain 
how I feel so that uh, so that we can better understand and like speaking in meetings where there are tension and all of that. This statement, I feel like the situ- I feel like uh, this is going on is a great um, like it unlocks the situation. If like they had tension, but we put the finger on, I feel like this is happening. Is that correct? Or is it just me? And then like the client is going to express what's going on better. And so I felt like this little, I feel mm-mm, is a very uh, fun uh, trick, uh, but, um, but um, yeah, just wanted to, to share uh, those uh, quick things. All right. And so coming, going back to, to the stakeholders. So you've, You've had the opportunities to work with um, many stakeholders. Um, how do you approach working with stakeholders? And can you give some insight of what you've learned? Yeah, so I think the number one thing is don't create an us versus them mentality because you don't want to be one of those data teams that are just really cocky, like, oh, we're so smart and technical they're stupid. They don't understand what we do. You don't want to create that kind of environment and tension. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's good to have an open door policy or no one has doors anymore because we all work remotely, but you know, an open, (laughs) open zoom policy, whatever. Um, You want stakeholders to feel comfortable that they're able to ask questions and that they're able to say, I don't understand this. Can you explain it to me? And I think it takes a lot of patience on the data team's side, but I think keeping in mind that they are experts in what they do really just helps reframe the situation. So just because they don't understand data analytics super in depth doesn't mean that you know they're not a useful asset to the business. They have their own expertise in sales, marketing, um, finance, you know, whatever they do is so important to the business as well. Mm -hmm. And just keeping that in mind, I think just really helps keep a positive situation. Everyone brings something unique to the table and everyone has a different background and expertise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it really takes respecting each other's team and expertise to be able to work together and collaborate. So I think, to help bridge that gap too, I think I would rather over-explain something than under-explain. So yeah. don't leave anything unsaid. Don't say, oh, I'm assuming blah, blah, blah. They're going to know that. They probably don't know that, you know? So just make sure you say everything that you need to say and say it clearly. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, super interesting. This uh, <laughs> just make me think of uh, like, you know how in relationships, sometimes we get so close from... Uh, like, uh, in, like in the relationship that you just assume that the the other person will know what you want and like this sometimes yep. creates some <laughs> this sometimes can create some um challenges and i feel like it's the same way maybe it someone is, yeah. will know very well and maybe some know, someone know you very well but we're not mind readers and uh, <laughs> and so yeah communication again but um super interesting um I'd like to make a little drift here and going towards mental mental health. Uh, can you share? Some, do you have some insights regarding mental mental health uh, in uh, while working in high stress environment or or facing tight deadlines? Do you have some insights to share? Yeah. So. I will say Crunchbase is an awesome company that really has a lot of policies and benefits in place to help us prioritize our mental health. 
So I think it's awesome when companies do that kind of stuff. So for example, we have a wellness benefit where we get a stipend every month that we can spend on wellness. So I use Vine to pay for my Peloton subscription. So a big way that I stay mentally healthy is I work out. I try to almost every weekday afternoon, but I don't always get to it. But I just go take a break from work at two o'clock when I start getting tired and just feeling like I need a break. I'll go do a workout, sweat it out, reset and come back. And I'm much fresher and just happier. Another thing I do, I have a standing desk and I have a treadmill under my desk. I spend more time standing and walking at my desk than I do sitting. And it has like changed my physical health, but also my mental health. It just keeps me feeling energized and motivated and happy because I think I personally find it really hard and just very cramped to sit all day. So a big thing for me is just staying active. Um, I also think just taking breaks when you need it, it sounds cliche, but really use your vacation days. A lot of people don't use their vacation days because they want to like cash them out or they feel guilty for using them. Hmm. No, use your vacation days. I am always looking forward to my next vacation and I'm trying to plan a vacation now for this summer. And then my husband and I are going on a cruise in October. So that gives me something to like look forward to because Hmm. your work should not be your life. Your work should be what you do to pay for and have your life. And for me, life is vacations and, you know, weekends, spending time with my husband. That's awesome. Yeah, it's just our very, very cool tips. Uh, and you mentioned like the break thing, like taking a break. This is crazy how, you know, you're when you're stuck with one problem or like one technical problem in, in whatever language, let's say SQL, and you're like spending hours and you just disconnect. And in the morning, in like five minutes, you know what's wrong and you fix it. And like, this is crazy how just yes. resetting yourself through night, you're being able to solve right in the morning. I always like to do like the technical part right in the morning where when my mind is fresh and, and like try not to, to have as, as less meetings as possible in the morning because I want to like create and use my, my mind resources. And so I feel like this. And you, what you mentioned also, sometimes we'll try to, 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 to find the solution to a problem and we'll stay too long whether it's sitting or stand up but we'll stay too long stuck to it and just by like having a walk or just leaving leaving the computer for a few minutes and just having a drink having a chat uh, or or just cutting and then coming back it resets everything and and a lot of the time it, it does the work and uh, uh, so i think it goes in in your direction uh, in a way totally um, And I was going to say, sometimes I like to work with the Pomodoro method. So you, I don't know if you've heard of it, but I've heard of it, but please, I'll explain it real quick. If anyone's listening, it doesn't. So basically you work for 25 minutes and then you take a five minute break. So I just set a timer on my phone. I turn on some good music and I just focus for 25 minutes and it, it helps me stay focused. I'm like, okay, this 25 minutes, I can't check my phone. I can't go on LinkedIn. I can't step away from my computer and get distracted. So it gives you 25 minutes of good quality heads down work. And then it also forces you to take a break. And for me, that helps me from getting burnout because it is easy to just stare at your computer for three hours, four hours, maybe eight hours working on the same SQL query. 
and that's how I get burnout. Yeah. You know, this, this technique is uh, is great. And unfortunately, I don't do it enough, but I do take pauses. What is true also, and, and, I've, uh, and I've felt it, is that, um, for example, in the very few hours before I start working for my company, uh, I do things for myself. And like, either it's like I program or I build things or I test things out. And I feel like when I'm in the learning process, um, I, I tend to, to not like to take some pauses, like for example, for one hour straight or one hour and a half or maybe two hours, I'll just be doing one thing. But because I'm learning, it is super exciting. And But if I'm doing something, I'm way better and more efficient because I'm not learning it. Then I feel like this method is very, is very um, efficient. Uh, but yeah, based on what I'm trying to achieve, for example, if it's coding, Uh, sometimes I want to stick a bit uh, more with the problem than uh, 25 minutes. What do you think about, uh, about that? Yeah, um, I think you can definitely adjust it for whatever you're doing. But I think regardless of how excited you are about the problem, you should still force yourself to take a break, even just like once an hour for five minutes. Because I'm a very like excited, passionate kind of person. So sometimes I'll get so invested in a project and I'm like, I'm going to sit right here and I'm not going to leave until I finish it. And that gets me kind of burnt out. Like by the end, my brain is so tired. I'm just wiped out and exhausted. So I would say it's probably better to force breaks, even if you don't feel like you really need mm. one or want one, just mm. like go get another cup of coffee, go sit outside for a few minutes, get some sunlight and come back because I think long term it helps prevent burnout and do you feel that it changed sorry <laughs> do you feel no, that it changes the um, the perspective of time because I have this feeling like when you force yourself into breaks it changes totally your vision of time and now an hour becomes because sometimes when you're used to do like three hours straight then an hour goes so fast but when you force yourself to take these little breaks then an hour like feels slower but not like in a bad way in like i do more things in less time do you agree with that absolutely i think just first of all having those short intervals just makes the day go faster i don't know if you like to work out but i feel like when i'm working out and i have like short intervals like i i like those more than when i have like long intervals um because you you know it's going to be over soon and then you can move yeah. on to the next one So I think it gives you like a good satisfying feeling of, okay, I just finished this one onto the next part, you know, my break and then back yeah. into the next cycle. And then I also think too, when you force yourself to have that heads down focus time, you're also more productive because if I just say, okay, I'm going to work for eight hours today, I can take breaks when I want. It doesn't really matter. I find myself maybe like getting distracted or drifting off thinking about whatever, But forcing myself like to have those boundaries, this is my heads down time, these are my breaks. I think it makes me be more productive when I am in my working times. Yeah. And I've even started scheduling my day like by the hour. I don't always stick to it, but I'll say, okay, I'm gonna work from you know 10 to 12 and take breaks every 25 minutes. And then I'm gonna take a break and go unload the dishwasher. So that mm. way I'm like taking a break from my computer, but then also getting mm. my house chores done. So I think that really helps me be productive, which helps mm. my mental health because 
Yeah. I'm less stressed if my dishwasher is unloaded, my house is like, yeah. you know, being taken care of. It makes me less stressed as well. Yeah. No, totally. And yeah, and nowadays in our jobs, we're doing, we can do a lot of um, working from home. So like the place we live in, yeah, I, I, I totally understand that. And, um, and while you were sharing, uh, I was thinking about, um, about, does it happen sometimes that you have this time management thing that you do for yourself to like be very efficient and sometimes Uh, in companies you will face someone that wants to take too much of your time when it's not necessary like with like a 10 minute calls you can get it solved but somehow they want to do one hour call and they will put x people in the call and it's useless but they want to do it this way and blah 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 so how do you approach this situation and like do you directly discuss with the person or do like how do you preserve your time so that you can keep on a high productive an efficient uh, reason? That's a good question. And I will say my job now, we do have very productive calls. So I usually only have like maybe two to three calls a day, 30 minutes each, nothing too crazy. But I have been in jobs before where I felt like I would be consumed with calls. Some days I would have three, four hours of calls. And then if I also take a lunch break, I'm like, that only leaves me with like two hours or three hours a day to get work done. Then that's, mm-hmm. you know, barely enough to really make big progress towards a project. Yeah. So I think setting some boundaries is a good thing. If you're added to a call and you don't feel like it's something that you need to be there for, maybe you can't contribute a lot to it, or you don't think you really just need to contribute a lot to it. Ask the person who added you. Hey, is my attendance necessary? I've been working really hard on this initiative and I just want to make sure that if I attend, it's something I really need to be at. And you can also set blocked off times on your calendar. So if you have a three hour block in the afternoon, just say focus time, block it off on your calendar, DM, message me if you, if you need me, you know, that way you're still available if something does come up and someone really needs help or has a really good reason to reach out to you but that way people aren't just putting random calls on your calendar during your you know big open block of time yeah yeah that's uh okay that's interesting because this is a challenge that some people can face and and sometimes we we don't think about it because if we, if we are very like um, company driven and we we're like okay i have these calls okay cool i'm, I'm going to do these calls and then this call but when you think about your own time and what really adds value, you're like, why is there so many calls? And, and what what are you guys discussing? And there is something that I'm going to I'm going to say it stresses me off, but in reality, I, I don't I don't really care. It's just like um, I'm just like okay, so that could be improved. This is more how I feel. But when you're in a call and and like you don't understand the value, like you don't understand really the point. Maybe there is an overall point, but it can be break down in five minutes or um or, or, an email. or less. Exactly, <laughs> or an email. Or an email. Uh but yeah, that's uh, that's another. So we're we're reaching the, the end of the episode uh, the episode kind of. I have a few little questions. I think I have three or four um, to, to finish the episode. The first one would be we, we spoke a lot about uh, values, qualities um that a data analyst should have. Um so if you had to to state um, some qualities and skills that you would look for to, for example, build your own team uh, of data analysts, what would you look for in the people? 
Um, I would look for, the first thing I would look for is hunger. Are they hungry to learn? Are they excited to be here? Or do they just want the paycheck? Because I, I don't care how good someone is at SQL. If they're hungry and they're excited to learn, I could teach someone SQL. I could get them up and running and confidently writing their own queries in a few weeks easily. But if someone's really good at SQL, but they are just complacent, they don't care to learn more and get better, they're not going to be able to learn about the business and the problems we're working on. And they're not going to take that next step to go the extra mile. So definitely hunger to learn. And then I would also look for just really good soft skills. So are they able to communicate well? Do they work well with uh, teammates? Do they have a teamwork attitude? Because those are things you can't really teach. And I think it just takes like one bad egg or one toxic personality to really ruin a team atmosphere. So if I were hiring analysts, I would look for people that were kind and could get along well with other people because I wouldn't be able to put up with someone who was bringing, you know, bad, negative, condescending energy into the team. And then, of course, on top of soft skills, I would also look for someone, hopefully, that had some SQL and data visualization experience. That would be really helpful. But I think those are much easier to learn and teach. Hmm. I see. Oh, oh, a little cat. <laughs> yeah, my cat is <laughs> yelling. Sorry. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Okay, so two more questions. Um, how can people reach out or follow you or see what you're doing, access your LinkedIn course? Do you have anything to share? Yeah, the best way to get in touch with me is on LinkedIn. That's where I have like my biggest following and create most of my content. So definitely follow me there. Um, also, I am on Instagram now. I am about to get a thousand followers on Instagram. So that's my first little milestone. But I've just been kind of working to figure out like what type of Instagram content I want to create. So definitely follow me there. It's at Jess Ramos Data. And also my LinkedIn learning course is in the LinkedIn learning library. There's also a link on my LinkedIn profile, and it is basically how to prepare for a job in data analytics. So if you're looking for your first analytics job or a more senior level role, this career will help you organize your skill set, learn the right skills, put it into a portfolio, and also get more interviews using LinkedIn. That's awesome. And this is so important and so useful. So thank you so much, Jess, uh, for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. My last question for you is, do you have a message for the Let's Talk AI community? Um, yeah, I would say if you're passionate about data, just go for it. There is a place for everyone in data and tech. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your gender is, who you are. There is a place here for you. So don't let anyone convince you otherwise. And imposter syndrome is completely normal. I still experience imposter syndrome. So don't think just because someone gets to, you know, a senior level or has a big following on LinkedIn, they just don't struggle with that. Everyone struggles with it. I think most of the time. So if you're feeling like an imposter sometimes, just keep on going. You're going to get there. And yeah, those are my last parting words. That's awesome. Well, I wish you to have a wonderful day, Jess. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you again soon.
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. Congrats, you've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.